Hello, and welcome to the Ordinary Church Podcast, a discussion of God's extraordinary works through his ordinary ways. My name is Winston Weber, and Pastor Mike is here to talk about the hills we are willing to die on. How's it going, Mike? Going well today, Winston, by the grace of God, and I'm here with my Bible, and we're ready to roll. So today, we're going to be talking about core beliefs in the Christian church that we are not willing to budge on. There mm-hmm. are a plenitude of different things that Christian churches all over the world believe, but it is clear that there are certain beliefs that must be considered out of bounds when it comes to the Christian church. And we kind of want to talk about those today to solidify what those beliefs are so that we can understand who is our brother, who is our sister, who can we trust, who is truly going to be spending eternity with us, and are there beliefs that push us out of the realm of Christian doctrine. So, Mike, can you give me an example of something that we are willing to budge on real quick before we jump into the things that we aren't? Absolutely. Um, Belief in zombies. Really? Seriously, That's you're not going to laugh. Christian belief. I was trying to throw you off. Man. Mm. The zombie apocalypse. Seriously, zombies. No, no, no. I think me, zombies is something we can budge on. Give me a Christian belief oh, that okay, is yes. something no, we're willing you, to budge you. on. Yeah, Christian yeah. zombies. I know. I, I'm insane. Christian no. zombies. This is my life. I, Christian I zombies. This. Christian zombies. <laughs> the zombie would be my word today. Zombie. How about a Christian belief? Um, zombie is? Okay. Baptism. Are we willing to budge on baptism? Here at Grace Church of Orange, we have triune immersion where we get baptized under the water once for the Holy Spirit, once for the Son, and once for the Father, but in Mm -hmm. the backwards order. So (laughs) there are other churches who dunk only once, and there are even other churches that sprinkle. Mm -hmm. Are we willing to have fellowship with those people? Absolutely. Here's the thing. You know, Paul talked to the Corinthians about this, really. He spoke very clearly to them about that, that Here was a church in a location that had a reputation for sexual immorality, uh, for religious pluralism, and for corruption. And here was a church in that locality that was floundering because they had gone wrong on all sorts of practical questions that were dividing the church, and questions like spiritual gifts and marriage and food offered to idols and the resurrection. And here's what Paul said right off the bat, okay? And he's talking to the church of God that is in Corinth. Uh, those that are sanctified in Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He starts off in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, letting them know that they're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think what he's getting at is this, this is your core. Jesus Christ is your core. We preach Christ crucified, risen, coming again. And so in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he says that. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, who, by the way, were diametrically opposed on all sorts of things, they were to be united around Jesus Christ, the power and wisdom of God. That's your core. That's what you're willing to die for, primarily, right? The common Christian core. That's right. And We know that there are many things that do give us distinction but shouldn't cause division, and yet there are things that we hold true. And Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ is Lord is something that we need to not budge on. 
Right. And, you know, with him proclaiming Christ crucified, there's something else he said in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he goes from saying we preach Christ crucified to saying, I made a decision. I made a decision about you in this locality, this church with all these problems. I made a decision. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the interesting thing about that is, that's not all he talked about. But everything he talked about was rooted in Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. So he was big on the crucifixion, big on the resurrection, right? And then he'd made some stipulations for the church. He corrected some of their issues. But those aren't hills to die on. Those are are things to align with. That's right. Now, it's clear from Scripture that the most important thing is the matter of life and death, and not here on this earth, mm-hmm. but life and death in terms of eternity. Mm-hmm. And clearly you see that in Paul's heart here, is he is concerned with you must be unified, not because you want to be doctrinally you know, robust and, oh, look at me, I'm so right. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. You want to be doctrinally robust because it's a matter of eternal damnation versus eternal salvation. That's right. You could almost say everything is a gospel issue. We'll say this sometimes. We'll say, you know what? That's not a gospel issue. That's a secondary issue. And that's true. There's certain things that are, that are true in that, where you say, you know what? Uh, what you think about baptism, let's say. Not the meaning, but the mode. We're talking about the mode of baptism. You could have a difference of opinion with other Christians, and that's not going to affect any gospel ministry at all. But if you say that baptism saves you, now... You need to get strong and firm on that and say, no, the meaning of baptism is is important, and we cannot budge on that because that's linked to the gospel. I think there's all sorts of things where we could go in a direction, and we talked last week, listeners, about a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic, and we'll get into that even more in with installments to come. But the idea is this. There are times that we can hold to a secondary teaching, that, that has clear implications that draw us away from other clear doctrinal realities. So, for example, if you're holding a view on baptism that you start inching towards you need it to go to heaven, then you're going away from some other clear doctrinal realities, which is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved with no qualification other than that. And then there's always groups who want to push their agenda to the forefront because they're trying really hard to win other people to their interpretation or their twisting of the scriptures. And that makes it highly concerning. So I would just say in terms of gospel issues, that there are some things that are gospel issues and everything is a gospel issue. Yeah. And the title of this episode is things that we're willing to die for. And Mm -hmm. right now we're talking a lot about things that we aren't. And the reason we're doing that is we're actually prefacing this because I, I think Maybe it's not for you, Mike, but I have the tendency to, of sometimes being hypercritical to the point of excluding others mm-hmm. before it's really necessary, if that makes any sense. Yes, and let's go to where Paul goes with that in 1 Timothy 4.6. Let's see where he draws the hard line. Paul tells Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Similar to what he said to Titus when he said, teach what accords to sound doctrine. And Paul would not have made a distinction there between a gospel and a doctrinal issue, because doctrinal issues are gospel issues. So when Paul goes hard on that, what he's saying is, you want clarity in Bible doctrine, 
that will ensure that you are presenting the whole truth, the, the whole Jesus Christ, the complete gospel. And so you want to make sure you're, you're, you're showing the complete gospel and being willing to agree to disagree on secondary things. The problem comes in, many Christians call certain primary things secondary things, and they call certain secondary things primary things. So the meaning of baptism actually is primary. The mode of baptism, that's secondary. Someone's view on spiritual gifts, whether certain gifts are in operation today or not, that's not a first cluster type thing. That's not a core issue unless you start inching in and say, you must speak in tongues to be a Christian. You see what we did there? If a person says that, now they're saying, in order to be saved, you must do this. Right. So the way to think about this really is that it's basically like looking at a target, right? You got rings going smaller and smaller and smaller mm-hmm. until you get to the center. Mm-hmm. And that center one is things that you are not going to budge on. These things you cannot change. The second ring is things that, you know what? I believe this, but I can still call somebody a Christian. They can still be saved if they don't hold this same viewpoint. But maybe I mm-hmm. can't be a part of the same church because, hey, I have a different view of the mode of baptism or something like that. Right. You hold it with a lighter hand. Yeah. But I think there's a battleground sometimes. And always it's it's the proper interpretation of Scripture beginning with a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic a way of handling the Scripture that Jesus handled the Scripture this way, and the apostles handled the Scriptures this way. And the context mattered, and the words actually matter, and the grammar actually matters. And what happens is a lot of people will give up on these things, so it's no surprise that they land in in different, different territories when it comes to biblical truth. And what happens is now they're in error. And I think there's going to be more and more debates as we go on, as the day approaches, as the day of Christ approaches and Christ's return, that some will clearly want to move Christians away from where they stand solidly. And I believe you must have a strong voice and and really represent the truth well and know that it might come as unexpected, but the Bible makes it really clear. There will be some who will follow false doctrines. Uh, Difficult times will come. People will, you know, will move away from biblical truth. And I think what I'd like you to do, Winston, is machine gun this one. Just give me topic after topic that I don't know is coming my way. Listeners, we don't have a list in front of us on this. As always, I have my Bible in hand and my mind is engaged. I'm trusting the Lord and I have a Bible in front of me. So indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to field these questions. You machine gun it to me, Winston. You come up with topics and I'm going to say, we're willing to die for it or we're not. I kind of want to take us back to church history because Mm -hmm. church history informs us on a lot of these discussions. And honestly, a lot of people paid the stupid tax, so we don't have to, right? That's a good phrase. Yes. (laughs) So basically— And we're—oh, by the way, we're paying the stupid tax, too, with any stupid thing we do. We learn from it, right? We learn from our own bad example. But hopefully we can pass that on so that future generations— don't have to pay that same right. stupid and, tax. By the way, speaking, <laughs> of, speaking of 1 Corinthians, that just reminded me of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says to them, these things happened, these things took place, 1 Corinthians 10, 6, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did, not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, and it goes on and on. But the idea that some of them went in the wrong way, we should be able to learn from their example twice it is repeated in verse 6 and verse 11. Now, these things happen to them as an example. Written down, it even says, for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. 
So and it even says this, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Like you have got to be humble. That's where that verse comes in. There's no temptation that has overtaken you than what is common to man and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. And it's not going after evil and it's not going after false beliefs and it's even not going after a prideful attitude about the things that we hold. That's right. So talking about this first one, the Apostles' Creed. Okay. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Mm -hmm. Okay. The Apostles' Creed has been around for a really long time, and actually, I don't know if you knew this, Mike, but one of our ladies' Bible studies is actually going through the Apostles' Creed right now. All right. So the Apostles' Creed in specific, this is one of the oldest Christian creeds. Right. Is it something we're willing to die about? I mean, I'm reading in here, do I really need to hold to the Virgin Mary? Uh, you know, she was she really virgin? Do I need to hold to that? Uh, do I need to hold... That you know the the Catholic Church. I thought I didn't well, like. Well, let's the Catholic go through Church. right. Let's go through line by line. Okay. Okay. So I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. So you go through it, and it's it's a belief in the Triune God. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Holy Spirit. So those things, yeah, you have to believe that. Okay. You would die for the Triune God. Okay, because He is presented in Scripture as the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is the creator of heaven and earth. So you're going you're gonna to hold to that no matter what. What it says of Jesus, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. You know, we say the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement, the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection, the authority of the scriptures, those are things we will die for. So the idea of anything in the Apostles' Creed that comes straight from Scripture, we're going to hold to. Uh, he descended to the dead. He, on the third day, he rose again. You know, he died and rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. All of that is straight out of the Bible, okay? So and, absolutely, you believe all that. And just for clarification, when it talks about he descended into hell, Virgin Mary, the Catholic Church, all these terms— probably have a, a very specific meaning. It's almost as though we can apply the literal, historical, grammatical, hermeneutic to the Apostles' Creed and understand that these words might mean something different than what we're originally thinking. Right, and always go back to the Scriptures, okay? Because like some, of, some versions of the Apostle Creed says he descended to the dead, others say he descended into hell, and we're just not going to parse that out right this moment, sure. okay? Because the whole idea of descending into hell is an interesting phrase, and exactly what happened. You can go to Ephesians 4 on that as well. Actually, can I... In First Peter... I want to pull something out of that, actually, uh, that is something that we're willing to die for. There is a teacher out there. Her name is Joyce Meyer, and she actually holds to the position that if you don't believe that Jesus descended into hell, into actual hell, and mm -hmm. paid for your sins in hell, that you are not saved. You are not a Christian. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ephesians 4.9 said, what does it mean uh, he ascended, but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? And even there, you know, that's going to be a passage where you really have to look at the original languages, and, and people are going to have a little difference of opinion there. Now, one of the phrases in terms of the Apostles' Creed, going back to that, the Holy Catholic Church, that word Catholic is lowercase c, it means universal, okay? So it's not talking about the Catholic Church, the Church of Rome, or anything like that. Didn't you always find it odd that the universal Roman Church, isn't that a little odd? It's a, yeah, it's, 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 it is, yeah. It's always strange. But anyway, it just means I believe in the Holy Spirit, and I believe in the Church, which is the institution that God ordained. And then the communion of the saints, what does that mean? That's just, again, fellowship among believers and our unity in worship and in mission. The forgiveness of sins, absolutely. The resurrection of the body, absolutely. Life everlasting, absolutely. You look at most of the things in the Apostles' Creed, there aren't many things besides wordsmithing it. There's really nothing you're going to really throw out. These are just uh, recounting like gospel truths. That's right. And so... I specifically brought up the Apostles' Creed because I think it's one of the oldest creeds that we have. Mm -hmm. A lot of people actually say the Apostles' Creed in church and stuff like that. And so the reason I bring it up is because there are a lot of things in the Apostles' Creed that we believe, and I would actually say I believe everything in the Apostles' Creed. But here's the thing. Do I believe it because it's the Apostles' Creed? No. I believe it because the truths found in the Apostles' Creed are reflecting Scripture. That's right. Only if it's found in the Bible do we fiercely hold to it. Okay? That's right. So, continue to rapid-fire them. The Trinity is clearly laid out in the Apostles' Creed. Again, I don't believe the Trinity because of the Apostles' Creed. I believe it because of Scripture. But mm-hmm. is that something that I need to be willing to die for? You're talking about the Trinity? Yes. Okay, which is a word that is not found in the Bible. Correct. So do I need to believe it? Absolutely. You absolutely need to believe in the triune God. The word Trinity, you need to believe in the triune God. You don't need to believe in the word Trinity, okay? The Bible does not have the word Trinity in it, but the Bible teaches that God is triune. So you can't just say, I believe in God the Father and God the Son, but I don't believe in God the Holy Spirit. I actually had a professing believer once tell me that, that they only believe in two members of the Trinity. And I'm like, that's not biblical. And they were really wrestling with that. They just got some wacky ideas that they had adopted And I was able to show them straight from the Bible just how many Bible verses have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in them just in one Bible verse. And so this is very clear. Yes, you need to believe in a triune God, God in three persons, to be a believer. Excellent. So now, what about the other statement found in the Apostles' Creed about the Virgin Mary? Do I need to believe born from the Virgin Mary? So yes, you need to believe in the virgin birth, and Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. This says nothing about the Immaculate Conception, which is what many Catholics, capital C Catholics, believe is that that Mary was also born of a virgin. And that is nowhere proven, nowhere taught in the Bible. And so, yes, you need to believe in the virgin birth of Christ to be a Christian. Yeah, and why do we believe that? Do we believe that because of the Apostles' Creed? Do we believe that because of church history and what Rome has taught? For No, of course not. Why do we believe it? Because, because the Bible teaches it. taught in Scripture. Now, let me make something clear. I just said you need to believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian. I didn't say to become a Christian. Mm-hmm. So when we preach you the gospel— my, uh, sneaky little word play. Yes. When we preach the gospel— We basically uh, let them know that Jesus died for their sins in their place and and was buried and rose from the dead. 
we preach Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We don't say believe in the Lord Jesus and that he was born of the Virgin Mary. That's part of the historical story. So you may learn that after becoming a believer, but what you do is you don't reject anything in the Bible that you come across as the story unfolds. And so the, when I say you need to believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian, what I mean is someone who's a believer in Jesus, a follower of Christ, a Christian, basically must believe the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible for their faith. And the idea there is that if I come across it, I'm not going to reject it or refute it. I'm going to receive it. That's right. So if there are some people out there in radio land who are kind of uneasy about believing something that seems like an ancillary doctrine, such as the virgin birth, I highly recommend going and studying it a little bit closer because there are a lot of doctrinal issues that come up when you start denying the virgin birth. Right. You could really say that the gospel rises and falls on the virgin birth. Yeah, it's surprising. How and the resurrection yeah. and the deity of Christ, all the things that we would die for. That's right. So virgin birth will die for, Trinity will die for, how about this one? Do I need to believe that God initiates and accomplishes salvation apart from my own will in order to be saved? That's an interesting phrasing you just gave, apart from your own will, because God actually changes the will in the whole process. I think what you're asking there is, is God the determiner of salvation? Is he the, the ultimate, or is there any higher authority than him in deciding who is going to be saved? And I would say this. You can become a follower of Christ, become a believer by hearing the gospel and believing it. We kind of just went over that. But once you become a believer and start reading the Bible, you won't try to refute and reject the scriptures. You will receive them with joy. And I know there's a lot of Christians that have gotten teaching that is so negative that they want to push against Bible teachings rather than embracing them because they bring joy to their soul. For some reason, they bring consternation to their mind when really God gives them for their joy. So for example, so you become a believer in Jesus by believing the gospel, and then you start reading the book of Ephesians, and you get to chapter 2, and it says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And really what you do is you teach a Christian to read the Bible as it reads, as it is stated, and not to twist it or to put someone else's teaching in on it, but say, what did the Holy Spirit inspire that person to write down? Now, what I want to point out there is you did not say you need to believe this in order to be saved or you're not a Christian if you don't believe this. Instead, you took the same position of we ought to become more and more in line with what the scriptures say. Yes, because we become more and more in love with Jesus Christ and we love his word. We love God. We love the word of God. And so we just read it and believe it. Which means that as we discuss these different things, we are looking back to the Bible to see what it says, to understand what it means, and then holding true to what it says and not putting our own doctrinal lenses above the Bible. 
Exactly correct. Well, thank you, Mike. This was a really good discussion. I know there are a lot of other different beliefs that we could talk about. And in fact, if our listeners want to send in questions about maybe a specific thing that's like, ah, do I do I need to believe this? Is this really necessary? Mm-hmm. Maybe you send those in to ordinarychurch at gmail.com. That's right. I would love that. We would welcome it. You know, we love uh, discussing the word uh, with our listeners. And I would just say that we need to be people that are very in love with Jesus And because of that, we want the Word of God to make an effect upon our lives. We hunger for the Word. It's it's all a positive thing because God has given us the Word to bring us joy and to help us understand who He is. He has literally given us the Word to reveal Himself to us. That's right. So thank you so much for joining me today, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So yeah, be sure to send those in to ordinarychurch at gmail.com. We'll try to get to them as soon as possible. Also, we're going to try to curate a little bit more questions so that way we can do an entire episode just on answering questions. So make sure you send those in and we'll try to get to them as soon as possible. Thank you so much and we hope that you'll join us next Thursday as we remain faithful even in the ordinary.